Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report magazine, and I'm Lee Romney, sitting in today for host Sasha Coca. We're celebrating Pride this month all over the state with parades and parties and bar crawls, and there's a lot to celebrate. LGBTQIA folks continue to come to California for safety and for community. But up until 50 years ago, even here, being gay meant living in the shadows. It was essentially a crime. You could be targeted and trapped and arrested. Quote, homosexuality, the term of that time period, was also considered a mental illness. So judges were committing people to psychiatric hospitals as well as to prisons. Today, you'll be meeting a man named Gene Ampon who lost some of his youth to a California state mental hospital because he was gay. He was known there by his number. 11302, I always remember that. We'll also be introducing you to some heroes who challenged those in power and helped bring about some major changes. We can help them get housing, we can help them get jobs, we can provide uh, mental health support. I'm a longtime journalist, and when I was working for the Los Angeles Times, I developed a specialty in mental health and criminal justice. That's how I met Jenny Johnson. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Lee. As a public defender, I helped start and run San Francisco's Behavioral Health Court, and it was a stroke of luck that you reported on our court. My entire career as a public defender was really on the front lines of this crisis, watching people lose their liberty because of untreated mental illness. Yeah, and for years, we've wanted to do something to bring my journalism and your expertise in the law together to tell this story in a new way. And that's what we're doing. We are working on a podcast called November in My Soul. It's about mental illness, confinement, and liberty in California. You are about to get a sneak peek of some of that work, about how state laws and psychiatric diagnoses converged in a really dark era for all LGBTQIA people, but especially for gay men. Because one of the things we've been exploring is who we label as mentally ill in the first place. Those who have power make the diagnoses. And that remains true to this day. We wanted you to hear this piece now because LGBTQIA rights are under attack again. That controversial bill in Florida that critics call the Don't Say Gay Bill. The latest fight over transgender rights. And once again, the epicenter is Texas. We're already sliding backward. We need to be reminded of where we don't want to go. A warning, there are some descriptions of violence and sex coming up. So this piece might not be appropriate for kids. My name is Gene Ampon. I was uh, at Tascadero, February 1962 to May 1964. A Tascadero State Hospital. 
It's a locked psychiatric facility that opened just eight years before Jean got there. It was built on the coast north of San Luis Obispo, specifically to treat so-called sexual deviance. It would become the largest institution west of the Mississippi to confine men just for being gay. When Jean was at the hospital, he spent a whole month locked in solitary confinement without pencil or paper. He wrote this poem in his head, and he still remembers every line. Spider, spider, along the ceiling slide. Spin your prison cell, locking me inside. Now should my fearful trembling send a tremor through your webbed descent, then it is true what I surmise, that men their dreadful dooms devise on as thin a silk as yours. Hello, hello. Welcome to Seattle. Thank you so much. Gene is 75 now, living in Seattle. And I meet him at the home he shares with Roger, his life partner of 40 years. The porch is covered in wind chimes. Gene collects them. He's thin with a beaming smile, and he's dressed up very nicely in dark slacks and suspenders. How long have you been here? I moved there in 1979 from... San Francisco. Gene had a stroke back in 2019, and it can make his words sound a little bit slurry. Also, when I visit, he's weak from a grueling round of chemotherapy for cancer that is in his liver and his lungs. So we sped up his audio just a little teeny bit to make him easier to understand. So most of the people that were locked up at Atascadero as sexual deviants for being gay, they were adults. But Gene was just 16 when he got to that hospital in 1962. Everybody had strange categories. Like uh, the juveniles were psychopathic delinquents. (laughs) Kind of sounds like little monsters. Psychopathic delinquent. Back when Gene was a kid, that was actually a legal label that judges could put on kids that they deemed a nuisance to society. If their parents or guardians agreed, they'd get shipped off to a state facility for an indefinite stay. That is so crazy. And the thing is, the teens at Atascadero were housed with grown men. And some of those men were seriously mentally ill. Some had committed violent crimes. Can you imagine? Gene remembers growing up in an apartment in Chinatown in Oakland. My father was Filipino. My mother was Irish. And back then, in the late 1940s, it was illegal for a mixed-race couple to get married. They were only really together for about a year. Money was super tight, and Gene bounced around a lot between his mother, his father, and one of his many stepfathers. And that chaos, it kind of gave him cover to ditch school and also to explore, especially in San Francisco's Tenderloin, where the underground gay scene was thriving. He first figured out he was gay at age 13 when he was hanging out at a gaming arcade on Market Street. I used to like pinball machines, and there were always older men who would, oh, you need another quarter? I said, sure, why not? Pretty soon, Gene was lying about where he was spending the night so he could hang out with other gay teens and hook up with men for a place to sleep and a decent breakfast. They kind of liked, seemed to like being with me and We did actually a lot of cuddling and stuff like that, and there was some sex. He'd been picked up for truancy before, so he was on the radar of the local cops. 
One day, he was just having lunch at a diner. And some policemen pulled up and they asked me, you know, who I was, what I was doing there. Gene landed in Juvenile Hall, and he says it snowballed from there. I want to clear something up about the criminal laws of that time. Adult gay men usually got in trouble for violating a law against what they called lewd and lascivious behavior, which sometimes amounted to only, like, holding hands, kissing in public. Or dancing in a bar. Or dancing. Yes, exactly. Like, nothing, basically. They could also be charged with things like sodomy, oral copulation, or even vagrancy. But because Gene was a juvenile, all he had to do to get locked up was skip school and hang around the gay scene. Yeah, he told me he was moved through a whole series of youth facilities for nearly five months because authorities didn't want his, quote, homosexuality to corrupt other kids. I mean, it wasn't like I killed somebody or stole something, but they didn't really have uh, any idea what to do with gay kids. One day, when he's still locked up in a youth facility, some guards come to his cell with a judge's order, committing him to a Tascadero. And he sees that his parents had signed it, too. A sheriff's car drove up at dawn to take the boy away. Inside the youth jail, his nightmare blinked through bloodshot eyes. That's an actor reading a prose poem that Gene wrote about his experience at a Tascadero not long after he got out. When I visit Gene, he's too weak to read the whole thing aloud. Incorrigible. Truant. Vagrant. Queer. Faggot. Punk. A menace to society, he recalled them saying. A crime whose only victim was himself. It was published in the early 1970s in Gay Sunshine, a gay liberation newspaper based out of San Francisco. I remember when you found it. I was so excited. I bought it from a rare bookseller. And the most amazing part is that Gene used his real name. That's how I found him. And I was the first person to ever interview him about this experience that he had. When I visit Gene in Seattle, we read his firsthand account together, and it stirs up some memories of things he hasn't talked about in decades. On his second day at a Tascadero, Gene was sexually assaulted by some of those older men he was locked up with. Do you remember being pulled into a room? And- yeah, it was in the utility room. It was one of the few rooms that didn't really have a door where the buckets and mops were. To reclaim some power, he ends up converting future assaults into transactions, agreeing to sex in exchange for cigarettes or food. Well, he has to protect himself, right? I always wanted extra food. because I guess I was a growing boy, but I always wanted more, kind of like Oliver Twist. Like everyone at Atascadero, Gene was considered a patient, not a prisoner. He was there for what they called treatment of his mental illness because, quote, homosexuality was listed as a disorder in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Yeah, and it had been in that manual ever since the first edition came out in 1952. It's published by the American Psychiatric Association, and clinicians still rely on it today. If you were gay back when Gene was a teenager, the book said you had a, quote, psychopathic personality disorder with pathologic sexuality. 
That's a mouthful. And Jenny, it's at the center of why you and I even started looking into a Tascadero in the first place. Exactly. We were coming across these outraged accounts of the treatment of gay patients in the radical gay press of the early 1970s. Accounts like Jean's and others with alarming headlines like this one. California runs an Atascadero Dachau for queers. I have to say something about that. Dachau for queers? Yeah. That was a shocking headline. There was a big outcry in the community over experimental treatments conducted at Atascadero and other hospitals on all kinds of patients, not just gay patients. Things like transorbital lobotomies performed with an ice pick. Those mostly happened during the 1950s. Yeah, so by the time Jean got to Atascadero, they were rare, if they were happening at all. But electroconvulsive shock therapy wasn't. Some patients got as many as 60 treatments in a single year. That's like more than one a week. Yeah, and you and I dug up those handwritten notes from an Atascadero research assistant that describe one patient who got electroshock in the late 1960s to, quote, cure his attraction to men. And then the doctor taunted him. I bet you won't do that again. Young Gene knew about these treatments. He wrote about them. He saw the electric shock box wheeling down the hall, stopping at someone else's room. The guards taunting him with the threat, your turn next. A new terror shot through his thoughts as the overhead light flickered while each jolt burned into some unfortunate brain. Because of Gene's age, he did not get electroshock. Instead, the numbing hand of intimidation had pills in it. Psychiatric medication was actually pretty new back then, and it was a blunt instrument that just had awful side effects. Right, like sedation, which was super convenient because they wanted patients to be docile. Right. Doctors handed out medication often and in large doses. I think for two years or more that I I got a a morning dose of uh, phenobarbital. Gene says he was also punished with solitary confinement for having a crush on a young man in his unit. But then it became noticeable to the guards, and so they separated us, and they sent me into isolation. They actually sent him out of the hospital entirely. That guy went to prison for a gay crush. As for Gene, his punishment was to spend an entire month in a windowless concrete cell with nothing but a flimsy sleeping mat, lost in his thoughts, writing poems about spiders and doom in his head. He was 16. After a month, a pale face emerging from the gloom, the sad, strange, sweet smile of madness slashed across his lips. The guards returned him to his ward. His rebellion laid buried back in that cell, smoldering within the walls of sexual intolerance. Other than punishment and pills, the treatment that Gene got was really about pressuring him not to be gay. And actually, he had some fun with it. I remember this one doctor who was doing a unit meeting with everybody, talking about homosexuality. And he said, uh, well, there is a normal homosexual period between 8 and 12, and then beyond that, it's abnormal. So I piped up, is is that a.m. or p.m.? A.M. or P.M. I just love that. No, I do too. And it's a window into how resilient Gene was, even as a teenager. He eventually did end up trying to play the game because he wanted out. He straight up told them. 
I never had any heterosexual experiences, and I wanted to explore that. So when Gene turns 18, he gets out. He'd been in the Tascadero for more than two years, though, and his parents had only visited him a couple of times. So now he was basically on his own with no follow-up support. The shaming that Gene and all of the gay men at a Tascadero suffered is so obviously unacceptable. After Gene got out, though, the so-called treatment, it got even more sadistic. Atascadero starts experimenting with something called aversion therapy not long after Gene gets out, right, Jenny? And the most horrifying one we learned about involved a drug called nectine, or succinylcholine. It's a drug that's supposed to be used on unconscious patients before they get shock treatment because it's a paralytic it keeps convulsing patients from hurting themselves. But the thing is, the Atascadero team decided to use it on conscious patients and leave out the electric shock part altogether. Right, so it was pure punishment. They literally paralyzed the patient's lungs and made them feel like they were drowning. The architects, if you can call them that, of these experiments, they wrote about what they did. After respiration stopped, the talking phase of the treatment began. Both negative and positive suggestions, spoken in a confident, authoritarian manner, were made by the male technician. They would say things like, don't fight, don't steal, and don't be a homosexual. They gave the drug to at least 90 patients between 1966 and 1969. Which is unbelievable. We are telling you about this because it shows the degree to which these doctors were robbing people of their dignity. And because we're about to introduce you to one of our heroes, a young psychiatrist named Dr. Michael Serber, who blew the whistle on a whole bunch of inhumane practices at Atascadero. Sadly, he died of cancer in 1974, but this is an actor reading from a paper that Dr. Serber wrote. If the procedure employed yields no chance of doing what it had been intended to do, and during its course causes danger of death, pain, or anxiety to the patient, it, in our opinion, must be considered an unethical procedure. Serber wrote this scathing paper blasting the American Psychiatric Association. He and a couple of other people had tried to push the group's ethics committee to condemn the enectine experiments, but they whitewashed the whole thing. And what we learned from Dr. Serber is it wasn't just gay patients who were subjected to this torture. Just about anything could land you on the gurney. Masturbation, delusions, hallucinations, escape attempts, black militants, lying, homosexuality, laziness, and mental retardation. Yeah, you heard right. Black militants. Patients who expressed support for the black power movement wound up with an IV of succinylcholine. And so did patients who were in full-blown psychosis or developmentally disabled. The problem is no one would publish his paper. Yeah, we had heard about it pretty early in our reporting, but we could not find a copy until we tracked down his wife at the time. She had saved everything. Which is incredible. Thanks to his papers, we found out that a state mental health official had quietly ordered an end to the use of a necktie in early 1970. Just as the radical gay rights movement was taking off. People were dragged from the bar and were shoved into the paddy wagon. 
They were pushing this the Stonewall Uprising in New York in June 1969 had launched this proud, in-your-face kind of gay activism. It was Stonewall that led to the first Pride event in the whole nation. It changed history. The police were there in massive numbers. The clips that you're hearing are from a 2019 documentary called Stonewall Forever, which was created by New York City's LGBT Community Center. There was enough provocation in every section the right was on. Jean Ampon was lucky to miss those horrible years of a necktie at Atascadero. He actually got out just in time. But the messages got through. Jean moved to Long Beach, and for a couple years, he tried to do what the hospital had told him was the right thing to do. He had two living girlfriends, one after the other. And I thought for a while that I was going to turn straight, but the main problem I had with them is they both talked too much. Stonewall spoke to him, too, and he listened. He'd wind up loud and proud. After Stonewall, gay liberation turned against psychiatry and psychology for moralizing and for practicing what they said was pseudoscience. And activists started pushing to get the diagnosis of homosexuality out of the DSM. We looked at the sources of gay oppression, and we kind of nailed them as the mental health industry, the church, and the state. That's Don Kilhefner, and he's another one of our heroes. He was a graduate student in history at UCLA. He was a former school teacher from this little town in Pennsylvania, so he'd been deep in the closet. But Stonewall changed all that for him. Every morning when I got to the campus, I'd read uh, the front page of the New York Times, and there was a story. Gay people uh, fighting back, overthrowing police cars, throwing stones, what have you. And I thought, oh, these are my people. Three months after Stonewall, Don was attending meetings every Sunday with the newly formed Gay Liberation Front in Los Angeles. Lee Romney, I presume? Hello. <laughs> Look at that. Got it all I visit Don in the Hollywood in. bungalow where he's lived for years. And he tells me that by January of 1970, he had dropped out of school and found an office for the Gay Liberation Front in this rundown fourplex. He slept on the couch there and manned the hotline. Since we were the only organization with gay in our title, Gay Liberation Front, we got calls from all over the country, beginning about maybe uh, 2, 3 a.m. in New York. That phone woke Don up a lot. Ring, ring, I'm dealing with a drug problem. Ring, ring, uh, my landlord is threatening to throw me out. Ring, ring, what legal rights do I have? Ring, ring, I've been arrested by my... You get it? Don was helping to build a community, a gay community. He was counseling people. He was even bailing men out of jail, going to pick them up in the middle of the night. Yeah, and in the fall of 1970, he finds out that this International Conference on Behavioral Psychology is coming to the Biltmore Hotel in downtown L.A. I suggested that what we do is we somehow or another get into that conference. Don had an inside contact, and that person let in about 30 members of the Gay Liberation Front. They were basically infiltrating. We're going to be talking about what you as psychologists are going to do to clear up your own mind. During a presentation about the use of electric shock to, quote, cure homosexuality, Don grabbed the mic. If you can dig it, stay. If you can't dig it, we ask you to leave. 
Don told the crowd that the Gay Liberation Front was there for a dialogue. And about half the people who were there stuck around, and they broke into little groups and actually talked to each other. Their message that day was, being gay is not a sickness. It's the mental health field that's making gay people sick. It was driving some people to suicide, to depression, to drink. It was dangerous. The dialogue that day marked a whole shift away from pure protest, and it started to bring the two sides together. Which worked. In late 1973, the American Psychiatric Association finally removed the diagnosis of homosexuality from the DSM for good. So more than a year before the APA agreed that being gay was no longer a sickness, things were also starting to get a bit better at Atascadero because Dr. Serber, our young psychiatrist, was really committed to the dignity of all patients, and especially his gay patients. He didn't believe in trying to turn gay people straight. Does anyone have the right to revise a person's entire value system in an area of behavior which influences only himself and a consenting partner? Instead, what he wanted to do was help gay patients find a community, a stronger sense of self, and aid in adjusting to a society which is predominantly heterosexual and is still generally hostile towards homosexuals. Heroes sometimes find each other, and Dr. Serber ends up connecting with Don Kilhefner down in Los Angeles. And by then, the Gay Liberation Front had turned into the Gay Community Services Center. It was essentially like an early re-entry program. I didn't realize they were even doing this back then. This is what we did in the mental health court, finding a community for people when they come out of jail, out of prison. And in Don's case, he was helping people coming right out of Atascadero. We sent them a copy of our brochure. Uh, We can help them get housing. We can help them get jobs. We can provide uh, mental health support. This blew us away. Atascadero State Hospital was intentionally placing gay patients in the gay community. It was such a change, and it was on the vanguard of what we are still trying to do today. And it was really the state hospital's very first attempt at community follow-up or community care. That's something that Jean Ampon never had. Yeah, as for Jean... I stayed gay. In 1975, California essentially decriminalized gay sex. Two years later, Jean met his life partner, Roger Anderson. We were in Germany, alone. Jean moved in with Roger up in Seattle, and their house is literally covered wall to wall with photos of their life adventures. This Berlin Wall. Life after Atascadero was not bad at all. No, every year seems to be an improvement. Don Kilhefner went on to become a Jungian psychoanalyst, and the Gay Community Services Center in L.A. turned into the largest LGBT organization of its kind in the world. Even as a young man, Gene could see the end game. We have seen your wrath and suffered your whims. We have endured your laws and survived your justice. We are your dead victims. We are your future unborn generations. We are inevitable. There is no cure that can make us well in your eyes. There's no humiliation that can keep us on our knees. We are inevitable. We finished our interviews with Gene before he died earlier this year, so he didn't get to hear our story, but we want to dedicate it to him. 
that's the California Report magazine for this week. I'm Lee Romney, sitting in for Sasha Coca. And I'm Jenny Johnson. Our reporting received support from California Humanities and the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism's California Impact Fund. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Victoria Maleon is our senior editor. Susie Racho directs the show. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. We had additional engineering from Chris Hoff and Katie McMurrin. Our team also includes Amanda Font and Amy Mayer. Special thanks to Stephen Rascon and Alexander Gonzalez. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.